Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Costas, nothing personal word of the day is Costas, as in Bob Costas. We've got him for a nothing personal Samson sit down. Welcome. Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm good, David, and I really appreciate the fact that you've put on the dinner jacket, the kind of dinner tux that I imagine Vic Damone might perform in, or Bill Murray as Nick Springs or Nick Rails on the original Saturday Night Live, just crooning the American songbook in front of an enraptured audience. So the truth is that I have all of my blazers for nothing personal in a row, and I literally just go next up. And when I'm done, I put it on the right side of the rack and everything moves to the left each day. So no, it doesn't matter. I do that with shirts and blazers. So today was the purple jacket and the white shirt just coincidentally. And are you getting feedback uh, from your viewers and listeners about that? Uh, they know they know the jacket rotation and they're they're yeah. pretty aware of it because if you go look at the shows that are on YouTube or people listening to nothing personal, I could be in my skivvies for crying out loud. Right. It doesn't matter. But for the video part, people sort of understand what date is. So they'll know, for example, that we tape this on Friday because whatever I record during the day, I wear the same blazer, the same jacket. And so this is what I wore for today's nothing personal. I got it. You know, I catch up with you on YouTube. Once, as you know, the way this works, once you click on something once or twice, you're going to get a lot of it. So I've probably seen a dozen of them, but they're out of sequence and I haven't picked up on what your uh, protocol is. Now I got it. You weren't born yesterday, so a few more episodes, you'll be right on it. And you'll notice that there's two different backgrounds depending on where I am. And even when I travel, because Viacom CBS is so generous that when I'm traveling on the road, they gave me equipment. And so then I'm just like in a nothing personal sweatshirt with the hotel curtains behind me. So you can always know where I am. There's no hiding. Which everybody's used to by now. Heads of state uh, to the least of us somewhere in a hotel room with the backdrop being perhaps an unmade bed. So that's something, it's funny you say that. That is something I would never stand for. So no matter what, the bed will get made in the morning. You know, I'm like that. I don't like disorder. It it upsets me. Now, I'm I'm not, you know, uh, what what is the word? Uh, OCD? OCD. I'm I'm, I'm not OCD, but I do like things to be in order. So when I am on the road, let's say I was doing a Sunday night football game, you get to the hotel on a Friday night, I unpack all my stuff. You know, it isn't that much. You're just there for 48 hours. But I hang the stuff up in the closet and I take the toiletries out and I put them on the counter in the bathroom. It just makes me feel, you know, like the world, even though it's a mirage, that the world is is more orderly than it actually is. Have you gotten the cubes yet? 
I'm about to change your no. life, Mr. Costas. Today, market, your life has changed. You're going to go online or have somebody go online for you in case that's not uh -huh. your gig. And there's something called packing cubes. And you put your clothes in these cubes. So when you get to the hotel, you literally take the cube out of your suitcase. You have one cube for underwear, one for socks, one for shirts, yeah. one for workout clothes, whatever it is. And you then don't have to clean out the drawers or carry drawer liner for putting your clothes away. You put the cubes ah. in the drawers with the clothes in the cubes. Well, as much as I travel, not as much as I used to, but still a considerable amount, this could be a godsend. Uh, you are going to text me. I, you know what? Normally people don't get anything for being on nothing personal, but I'm yeah. going to get you cubes because I'm going to get you all different sizes and your life. I'm so jealous of how you're going to feel the next time you go to a hotel because there's nothing like the first time. So true in so many ways. So, so listen, I have so much to cover because I I'm going to get to HBO. I want to talk about your show. I want to mm -hmm. talk about sort of where where you are and why you are where you're there. But I got to start with this. People want to understand the majority of people who contact me. How did you how did you start? How did you get to where you are? What can I do? I want to be on Survivor. I want to do a show. People look mm -hmm. at you and your career and you are the best. You are the voice of generations. Twenty nine. Twenty nine Emmys. Is that right, Mr. Costas? That's what I'm told. Twenty nine. I, I don't have all of them. You know, my 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 wife recently came across one of those things. She started counting. We keep them in an inconspicuous place. It's not like if you walk into the house, you're going to see it right away. If you're a guest, we keep them in a in a little library. So she started counting, and we only have twenty six. I think I have one twenty nine, but we only have twenty six. I think Dan Patrick has one of them because Dan used to always good naturedly gripe that we were in the same category and he didn't win year after year. And I started making appearances on his show the morning after. And so I did bring one to to Dan uh, and I believe he may still have it. But where the other two are is a mystery to me. It's not like leaving a sandwich or a bottle of water when you visit someone. Yeah. When you walk out yeah. of a place. Don't you say, hey, am I forgetting something? No, you know what happens? You give it back because they don't know who the winner is. I'm sure the same thing is true with the Oscar or any other award. They don't know who the winner is until you open the envelope. So they hand you a, a generic Emmy and you walk off the stage after you say what you say. And then there's two ways to do this. They can mail you the band and you put it on yourself. Or you can say, mail me, FedEx me this Emmy with the band already on it. And I'm so inept at basic household chores that a few times I've said, hey, just send me the Emmy whenever you get around to it with the proper notation affixed. And my guess is that a couple of those never got sent. And I didn't even notice until until Jill started counting. And I was like, but how would that explain bringing it to the Dan Patrick show and not leaving with it? That's the one I don't quite understand. No, because I, I, I left it with Dan uh, and it was part of his set. It sat there. Sometimes yeah, it was remarked it. upon. Sometimes it wasn't. So I know where it is. You know, so if, I, if, I, if I'm ever down on my luck and I have to hawk all the stuff, I can ask Dan for it back. Uh, according to the way it works, like with people, Boris Becker, in that situation, you're going to really have to keep track of these. It's never going to happen to you. Yeah. Just know this is value. Like, this is something that your kids are going to say, hey, we're missing three Emmys. <laughs> Don't make me go all OJ and try and reclaim my own stuff. So tell me, how did you start? And how can someone be you? 
Well, you know, I came out of a very distant world compared to today, late 1960s. I know I want to be a sports broadcaster because when I first became interested in sports, for whatever reason, and there are a combination of reasons, which maybe we'll talk about and maybe not, but uh, I could not separate the broadcasters from the games. So when I was in the backyard playing wiffle ball or playing stickball in the streets in New York, I heard Mel Allen and Red Barber in my head. If I was shooting baskets, I heard Marty Glickman and then later the young Marv Albert. It was inseparable. And we moved from New York to California in the early 1960s, briefly, about a year and a half, we were in California. And my dad and I drove cross country and it was late August, early September. And as we drove, we fiddled with the dial and through the crackle and static came the various voices of baseball. Tiger games, the Pirates games, the Indians games, the Cardinals on KMOX with Harry Carey and, and Jack Buck. Uh, and I've told this story once or twice before. The Cardinals, until expansion, as you know, were the southernmost and westernmost franchise. And KMOX had a very large reach. On a clear night, could be heard in 40 states. But as we crossed the Rockies, or roughly speaking, and got toward or closer to the West Coast, we lost baseball for a while. And then somewhere around Nevada, through all the static, came the Dodger game. And I still distinctly remember my dad saying to eight-year-old me, we're almost there, Bobby. That's Vin Scully. And I later found out, David, and I found this out only, it only occurred to me five or six years ago when Vin was retiring and there were a lot of appreciations of him. He and my dad were born on the same day, not just the same birthday, the same day, November 29th, 1927. And I told Vin that story uh, once many, many years ago about driving cross country and what my dad said. And he said, my primary reaction to that is not envy, but appreciation, because my own dad died when I was three and his mother remarried. And he described the, the gentleman she had remarried to as a very lovely man but not his dad. And he wasn't, I think he was either uh, a, an Englishman or a Scotchman, Scotsman, uh, one or the other. So he didn't have an interest in baseball. Uh, Vin cultivated that himself. And so he was, he was appreciative of that kind of father-son bond that, that baseball, especially in that era and other sports could create. So anyway, to your question, now I'm 16, 17 years old and things were so much less sophisticated then. Your guidance counselor would hand you a brochure from a few universities that you might be interested in. And at that time, Syracuse had one of the very few communication schools. A lot of schools had journalism schools. That meant print journalism. But very few in the late 60s, early 70s had what Syracuse had, which was an early understanding that broadcasting was not uh, the stepchild of real journalism, that it was important and it was emerging. And they had near state-of-the-art facilities in the Newhouse School. So I read all about that. But the thing that really tipped the balance was that I read in a Nick yearbook that both Marty Glickman and Marv Albert had gone to Syracuse. And that was good enough for me. Uh, and I played a small part, only a small part in the notion that Syracuse is sportscaster U. For all their other uh, worthwhile and prestigious programs, there are about 100 sports broadcasters around the country, past and present, uh, that first learned the ropes at WAER in Syracuse. So that's what I did. Did you ever want to be an athlete? And then when you, when because we're around the same size, did you have that epiphany one day yeah, yeah. where it was going to be more, more difficult to attain major league status on the field versus behind a microphone? 
Yeah, early on, I uh, was able to ascertain that if I was ever going to get into Yankee Stadium without buying a ticket, it would be to sit where Mel Allen and Red Barber sat, not to stand where Mickey Mantle was standing in front of the monuments in center field. But I'm sure you face this too, and you play along especially when you're doing football or basketball and I'd be doing basketball and standing next to Doug Collins, who's a foot taller than me, or now you're interviewing Shaq or whatever it is. And I get the sight gag and all that stuff, but I was not, I was not the kid that you picked last and put in right field. And he was picking four leaf clovers and not paying attention. I was decent. I was even now, if we went out and tossed a baseball around or threw a football or shot baskets, you would see that I wasn't the kid who like, if you threw me the ball, I, I, I'd cringe. But at the same time, I wasn't good enough to make my high school teams. I was the last guy cut from the baseball team and the basketball team both. In basketball, I could really shoot, but I had to be wide open because I had no game other than that. I could only go right. I, I was easily guardable. You know, I was five, six, five, seven, easily guardable. And when, when the coach cut me, uh, he said, you know, I could keep you around for two reasons, comic relief or to shoot technicals. But you have to be in the game if there's a technical foul call. And I can't risk putting you in the game because you can't guard anybody. <laughs> so that was the end of that. I can't believe how in sync we are with our past. I got also cut by my baseball team. I made my freshman baseball team. But my entire life of what I would consider a decent amount of success in business was because of the mm-hmm. failure I felt when my freshman basketball coach cut me. And he took a guy named Joshua Price who in high school was 5'11", and I was 5'2", whatever I was. Yeah. And he said, I said, he, this guy doesn't play basketball. You can't teach height. His name was Steve Trombley. I never forgot it. And it basically motivates me to this day that you cannot judge a book by its cover because I practiced more. I would shoot free throws all through the day and night. Mm-hmm. All the things like tying my right hand behind my back so I could go left. All those things because I also grew up with the voice of, of Marv Albert, and I wanted to be the point guard for the Knicks. That was the ultimate, but it didn't happen. Yeah, you wanted to be the successor to Walt Frazier. But I, I, I thought it could be Earl Monroe. I thought it could be Earl. You did. Earl of Pearl. Earl of Pearl. Nothing, nothing, nothing but style. You know, I, 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 I've never had that, uh, oh, gee, if only I could be. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster and I was lucky enough to become a sports broadcaster. Um, so this isn't like option two for me. This was option one and it worked out. Well, I would say it worked out. And, and if you look back at your career, which is quite, you're still, I would say you're in the, in the top of the seventh of your career. Is that where you put yourself? Are we heading toward the stretch? Probably generous. No, <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's not the bottom of the eight. I have a few more innings left and I'm doing only what I want to do and only as much of it as I want to do. I still enjoy being around baseball. So I've been with the MLB network for a long time. And this year I've added a few games with Turner Uh, just did the uh, Padres giants game a couple of days ago and have some more coming up in the next few weeks. Um, And uh, the HBO show, which you were on recently uh, is the type of show I've always enjoyed doing, but the inventory isn't all that great. Uh, so it's not like you're cranking one out every night or every week. Um, and the contributor stuff on CNN is uh, only when I'm available and you can do it like this from wherever you are. So it, it's enough to, to keep me busy and to keep me engaged, but not enough to wear me out. Do you find that baseball is the toughest sport to call? I've always said, and I'm not alone in saying this, 
in many respects, especially on television, not on radio, but especially on television, it's the easiest sport to do reasonably adequately. But it's by far the hardest sport to do well. Because even when baseball has its proper leisurely pace, as opposed to the too often lethargic pace it has now, there's still, even when a ball game takes two hours and 20 minutes or whatever, and it feels like it's the right pace, it's still not a constant action game. It's not hockey. It's not basketball. It's not football, which is segmented in such a way that, especially on television, the replays come naturally, the analyst comes in, the play-by-play man jumps in. It's much more play-by-play dependent. I think it should be. Um, And you need to be able to fill the time, not meaninglessly, but with something that's engaging, with anecdotes, with some kind of conversation, with uh, the analyst, with observations, past and present. So it calls upon, I think, a, a wider array of skills. You're a conversationalist. You're a companion because that's the nature of baseball, especially on the local level. Uh, you've got to be good at description, but very little of it percentage wise is actually description of the ball and play. A lot of it is just the atmospherics of it. Um, as Vin Scully once put it on television, you have to come up with an apt caption, but on radio, they give you a bucket of paint, some brushes and a blank canvas, and you got to paint the whole thing. Can we talk about Vin Scully for a minute? Because one of the things sure. is that he d- he does games, and when he's on TV, what I think people may know him for, it may not, is he often did it without a partner. Yes. And tell me, when you are doing a game, do you need a lot of preparation with your partner? Would you like to prefer to do it alone? What is your view of that And in terms of what's not just easier, but what's better for the fan, for the watcher? Vin, Vin was unique in a category all his own. He came out of an era, however, which was radio dominant in the 1950s. And usually what would happen, you'd have a couple of announcers and one would do maybe six innings and the other would do three. But generally, the, you were alone. The other guy would get up, go to the back of the booth, go get something to, to drink, maybe keep and score alongside you. But you rarely heard the other announcer. It wasn't like that. These are, these are Lindsey Nelson's innings. These are Bob Murphy's innings. It was that kind of thing. So Vin always, except on network TV, where he formed a very good team with Joe Garagiola, and that's a different set of circumstances, on Dodger games, whether radio or television, 99% of the time, he was by himself because that was the way he grew up in broadcasting. And he, he was a legend by the time he was in Los Angeles for a couple of years. So it was wise for them to do it in Vin Scully's way. And maybe this is too inside broadcasting, but I've pointed this out to other people, uh, producers, directors, other broadcasters. If you watched a Vin Scully game, like over the last 10 years of his career, uh, and he was only essentially doing home games from Dodger Stadium, those telecasts were produced and directed from the inside out. If Vin Scully was telling a story, the producer and director weren't jumping all over the place with bells and whistles, with extraneous replays, with graphics that weren't all that important, with, with a shot from nowhere that wasn't connected to anything except the director wanted to show it. Why would you truncate a Vin Scully story? Now, if something was really interesting and they knew that Vin would find it so, then they take that shot. Or if there was a spectacular play or a controversial call, of course, they're going to get in there with that. But basically, their marching orders were, get out of the way. There's an artist at work here. 
and he's earned that trust and affection from his audience. Would that, would that work on a national broadcast? No. But locally in Los Angeles, obviously it would. So when you're broadcasting a game and you know it's coming to a crescendo, you know this could be a moment, are you thinking mm-hmm. in advance of what your call is going to be? Or do you, do you rehearse? So, for example, if you're doing a Game 7 of the NBA Finals or if you're mm-hmm. doing a Game 7 World Series, whatever you're doing, and you know that this is it or there's going to be that moment or if yeah. someone's going for the home run title, are you practicing in your head or do you just let it come out? You have the storyline in mind, may or may not play out, but you have what the storyline could be. Uh, The Yankees are on the verge of sweeping the Braves, for example, in 1999 or the year before uh, any game could be Michael Jordan's last. It could be the last of the Bulls dynasty. So you're you're aware of all those storylines, but I've never been one that scripted anything out in advance. Uh, Sometimes you can tell and sometimes they're good lines that uh, the announcer has thought of in advance. But sometimes you can tell that it didn't happen spontaneously, but the greatest of the great, Vin Scully, came up with great stuff off the top of his head. well, what about the end of the games, though, Bob? At the yeah. end, when you do uh, – one of the things that I remember from my life is sort of you putting a bow on a story. And the story mm-hmm. is a series or an event where you look at the camera. Yeah. And it's I, I sort of like consider this, but I maybe that's where it was born, actually, is what you did. I don't know if you would talk about that from back on the record, your show on HBO. But tell me about those. Yeah. Are those scripted or is that just off the top of your head, too? Well, when I was hosting, and that was usually with the NBA or the NFL, sometimes I would have time to write an essay or to put some bullet points in front of myself and ad lib something. You could anticipate, I'll give you an example. Only the Bulls could win the 98 title in game six. Now, if it went to a game seven, you had to be thinking about what if the Jazz win? They finally broken through came so close the year before, they end the Bulls dynasty, et cetera, et cetera. So you could be thinking of those storylines. But in game six, all that could happen is that the Jazz push it to a seventh or that the the Bulls win it. And I remember I said when Michael Jordan stole the ball from Carl Malone along the baseline and brought it himself out of the backcourt, you just intuitively know no one else is touching this ball. You know, just get out of the way. The last shot belongs to Michael Jordan. And as he crossed the midcourt line, there were 17 seconds to go. And I said 17 seconds from game seven or from championship number six. And then when Jordan made the shot, the call of the shot was okay. And then the replays come in and Isaiah Thomas and Doug Collins speak over the replays. But it was my job, I think, to look at a bigger picture. But I I had to put a, uh, a qualifier in there. And so I said, who knows what will unfold in the next few months. But that may have been the final shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. And if that's the last image of Michael Jordan, how magnificent is it? And luckily for me, they were showing the shot, the classic pure jump shot in slow motion. So the video and audio really matched up. And then when the last dance series came out that everybody was so into a, because it was compelling and B because there was no live sports during that COVID summer of 2020. um, And they looked back on, that season, a lot of what we had said and what we focused on held up. And that's what you hope for, that not just in the moment, but if people go back and and watch it or listen to it, that it still makes sense. And I'll give you two from baseball that I remember because they're replayed so often. 
one where I got it and one where I didn't quite get it. In 1999, and this one in a sense was easy because the Yankees were up three games to none. Game four is at Yankee Stadium. They have a big lead in game four. Now, again, I didn't script it, but I knew that this was the last uh, World Series of the 20th century, blah, blah, blah. And that even though the Braves had a claim to be the team of the decade, and if they had won that series, they could have claimed it, the Yankees, by winning it, uh, would surpass them. And so there was an easy fly ball to left field. There was no doubt that the ball was going to be caught. And so as it descended, it occurred to me to say the New York Yankees, world champions, team of the decade, most successful franchise of the century. And then I just shut up because it was a home game and everybody was going nuts and the crowd just carried it from there for the next period of time. And, and that holds up. Now, long answer to your short question, and I'll shut up in a second. 1995, the Braves, to that point, are the team of the decade. They won 14 straight division titles, as you know, from the early 90s into the 2000s, but only won one World Series. And they had lost two World Series prior to that. Now they're up three games to two, game six in Atlanta. And there's a fly ball to left center field, which ends it, and Marquise Grissom catches it. And I say, proving I didn't script it, I say the team of the 90s has its world championship. Well, to that point, they were the team of the 90s. That doesn't hold up so well, but five seconds later, not more than five seconds later, a better line pops into my head. But since I never scripted anything, <laughs> I, I didn't have a an eraser. I couldn't rewind the tape. The place is going nuts. The Braves are celebrating in the middle of the diamond. And this pops into my head. Atlanta at last. That would have been so much better than the team of the decade. Atlanta at last. To Vince Scully's point, that's a good caption beneath that picture. And then you just shut up. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Did you pay your Wi-Fi bill? I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I was just thinking about the Braves as the team of the 90s. I had so many conversations with John Scherholz about this. Yes. And we would talk about Marlins versus Braves. Marlins two World Series, but never made the playoffs other than that. The Braves win the division every single year and not counting last year, of course. Although last year they finally caught the Marlins with two World Series yeah. in the last, whatever, 30 years. And I'd always say, which would you rather be? And he said, it depends what chair you're in. After the fact, I'd rather have the two rings. But before the fact, I want the chance to win the rings. And so we were never yes. able to settle it because he would never acknowledge that he would give up all of those chances to win, but always acknowledge the pain. You know, it, it, it's okay to say the Buffalo Bills were a really good team, but they never won it. So it's, it's hard to say that they were the best. 
Yeah, although to get to four straight Super Bowls is a remarkable accomplishment to win 14 division championships in succession. Incredible. And they were, in, they were in five World Series in the 90s. They lost four of them. Um, there's, you know, if you get that close, there's going to be more heartbreak. You think about, you know, the Bill Belichick's, um, Chuck Noll, who won all four. Uh, those, those guys are few and far between. You think about Tom Landry, who lost more NFL championships and Super Bowls than he won. Same thing true of Don Shula. I, in my time in baseball, I never saw a better manager than Whitey Herzog. He he had an impact on two franchises, not just in-game strategy, but the whole makeup of the Kansas City Royals of the 70s and the Cardinals of the 80s. And he lost three straight times to a great Yankee team in the ALCS. He won the World Series in 82 against the Brewers with the Cardinals and lost two game sevens in 85 uh, to the Royals and in 87 to the Twins. Does that make me think that he is a lesser manager than Joe Torre, who won all those World Series and is rightly regarded as an excellent manager? No. But if you're in contention that often, that you have just as great a chance to experience heartbreak as exhilaration. I've never seen anyone. Think of Jerry West. That's the one possible I have right now. Think Think of poor Jerry West. He's the logo of the league and he's Mr. Clutch, but he never beat the Boston Celtics. He lost them like seven times. And the one championship team he was on, I, who did they beat? They beat the Knicks, I guess, in the, in the, in the final. It wasn't the Celtics. They never beat the Celtics. Never beat the Celtics. I was thinking about, because you saw my World Series ring when we taped. I think you may have seen it before, but when we were taping your show. And I was thinking, I've never seen a pennant ring. You get a ring for winning the pennant, actually. But I've never seen Mm -hmm. anybody wear it in the game. So when we'd be at the winter meetings or owners meetings or GM meetings, no one ever wears the second place ring. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's ambivalent feelings connected to that. Uh, there are some teams that come out of nowhere and winning the pennant was enough. And I think if you were a fan of the 1951 Giants, they didn't win the World Series, but we know the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant with that Bobby Thompson home run. Maybe the Red Sox, the miracle Red Sox of 67, who came from ninth place. They've been lousy forever and they won an exhilarating pennant race back when there were no levels of the playoffs. You either won the pennant and went to the World Series or you went home. Four teams still alive last weekend. Carl Yastrzemski with a dream season. They get to the World Series. They lose in seven. Bob Gibson beat them three times, including game seven. Um, Maybe the disappointment isn't as great when you've exceeded expectations, but when you expect to have a good chance to go all the way and you fall short, um, you know, I think that then you have to go back to the Bill Parcells quote, winning Losing feels worse than winning feels good. I just talked about that on a show where toward the end of my career, I knew that I was ready to be done after 18 years when losing felt worse than winning felt good. Because in the beginning of my Mm -hmm. career, winning felt way better than losing hurt. But then it switched at some point and then it becomes devastating because even the best teams in baseball, you spend two months a year, right? 60 days. If you win 100 games, you lose 62 times. That means two months yeah. out of your year, you're going to bed miserable. That's, that's a terrible equation, actually. Tony LaRusso always would say, and he still says it to this day, uh, uh, 
you say hello a lot of them at the ballpark hey tony how you doing he goes ask me about 10 o'clock which is when a 705 game should be ending not always these days ask me about 10 o'clock so how his mood was entirely dependent on a w or an l are you willing to acknowledge the way tony la Russa could be as an opposing manager I'm interested. I did spring training with Tony every, almost every year of my career because we shared a facility with the Cardinals. He was a very difficult person, I, and I've, I've known him forever. But he is uh, an old school, and I say that in both the, in the best possible way, one of the great managers of all time, Hall of Famer. But he's but someone, you know, when you talk about the misery he feels at 10 o'clock, he inflicts misery on people between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. In your sort of relationship with the Cardinals, are you willing to acknowledge that, or did you not see that? No, I acknowledge that some people feel that way. He's always looking for any edge and he has an edge about him, a competitive edge about him, uh, which would rub some people the wrong way. I've always gotten along great with him. He's always treated me extremely well from his days as a young manager with the White Sox when I was just breaking in at NBC and doing the game of the week with Tony Kubek. Uh, I will tell you this. He respects people who know and respect the game. Um, if, if you, if he feels that way about you, then he will treat you with respect. Oh, listen, I'm not talking about him personally. I'm talking about his manager, the way he manages games. Oh, yeah. it, it is. Yeah, a, that's uh, an edge. The, the edge there's is this, edge. if there's a weather, like the way Tony, and I learned this from Tony, if there's weather coming in, we're not going to say anything until we have to and see if we can get the other team's pitcher to start warming up. And that's a nice competitive advantage. There's nothing wrong with that at all. When you did something to one of his players, we would talk about it in the clubhouse, hey, we're going to get hit by a pitch. That's just how it's yep. going to be. Here's who we think is going to get hit. So put a little extra padding on your ass because he's not going to go for your head. But believe me, you're going to get hit somewhere between the numbers and your buttocks. No question. No question. And I think he has acknowledged that in a general sense. He won't talk about any specific incident, but in a general sense, he's acknowledged that that is his approach. And as I think about Tony, Going back to your earlier question about, you know, losing, feeling worse than winning feels good. Think of the Oakland A's, 89-90-91. They go to the World Series three straight times. They only win once the 89, I have it wrong, 88-89-90. That's what it is. They lost to the Dodgers in 88, the Gibson Miracle home run. They won in 89, the Earthquake Series against San Francisco. Then they were swept by the underdog Reds in 1990. Now, that Oakland team, is probably as good a team as the Oakland team of the 70s that won three straight. Earl Weaver's Orioles, 69-70-71, one of the great teams of all time. They lose to the Miracle Mets in 69. They beat the Reds in 70. They're up 3-1 on the Pirates in 71, and the Pirates come back and win it. Does that make Earl Weaver a dunce or Tony La Russa a dunce or reduce? It, it definitely reduces those teams' standings in the imagination of casual fans. But if, you're, if we're being fair about it, over the long haul, those teams were better every year than the teams they met in the World Series. But they each lost two out of three World Series in that three-year run. There's something about finishing, though. Right. So we'll talk yep. about that when you're when you're entering a series, whether it's regular season, but most importantly, during the postseason. Pat Riley's big on this. Right. You got to finish. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're just otherwise you're just the same as everyone else. You've lost. So it's, it's an interesting thing when you're in competitive sports or when you're doing your own show, when when you're looking at measuring. 
you have to choose some way to measure, don't you? And I think the sure. majority of people would say, let's measure rings. Then you get into an era question where Bill Russell only had to beat a few teams or the Yankees, there were not as many rounds of playoffs. J.J. Reddick talked about it on, on our show last week with you, the, the HBO show, where it's hard to compete how much more difficult it is and hard to yeah. compare, right? Because Jordan versus James, et cetera. But Pat Riley talks about this, and I think Tony LaRusso would say it too. If he really were being honest with you, which he always is, finishing matters. Sure, sure. But the capriciousness of sports is also that um, in 2006 and in 2011, LaRusso won World Series with the Cardinals with teams that weren't all that good but they came together at the right time. Those teams weren't nearly as good as some of the teams he had even earlier in St. Louis and certainly in Oakland. They weren't nearly as good, but they won the World Series. But when he looks back, when people look back on that, you know, just like in the NBA, there was a title that somebody won. The San Antonio Spurs beat the Knicks in 99 and Patrick Ewing was injured, didn't play. There's been mm -hmm. titles where there's a huge, somebody's missing from a team and they say, oh, the advantage is to the other team. Yeah. But 10 years later, They've won the title. They're in the list of, of champions. No one thinks about that anymore. So your, yeah, your story about the Cardinals, they yeah. won, Bob. They, were, they had the worst regular season record, but no one cares about that. They have a ring. Yeah, I'm not begrudging them that at all. And that's modern sports with multiple layers of the playoffs. Last year's Atlanta Braves had the 12th best record of all the playoff qualifiers. The 12th best. Teams like the Seattle Mariners and Toronto Blue Jays, granted at a different league, they didn't make the playoffs. They had better records than the Braves. But the Braves got hot at the right time, and they won it, and it's exhilarating and exciting, and they deserve it. So that's a good segue. We have not yet spoken about the Olympics, which you're, you're just as well known for your Olympic coverage as you are for, for baseball, actually. But I want to ask you, would you ever take the job – as commissioner of baseball or the head, the chairman of the IOC? Is that something that would ever interest you? No, not at all. Um, it was flattering. There was a period of time, I guess, because I was outspoken about some things in baseball. And I, I wrote a book about the state of the game that uh, appealed to some people. And they would just toss it out, like my name connected with that. But I do not have the business expertise, nor do I have the temperament uh, to deal with the multiple personalities and the back room arm twisting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the, the example I always gave was, if you think someone is a good political commentator, someone you read in the New York Times or whatever, that doesn't mean you think he or she should run for the Senate or the presidency. It just means that you think their observation should be taken into account. So I, I never took that seriously. And if I had somehow been foolish enough to want the job and they had been foolish enough to hire me, they would have soon realized the error of their ways. I would not have been good at it at all. Well, we've had a couple of presidents who started off as actors and TV personalities. Uh, yes, we and have. The current, the and, and current that, president of Ukraine started off as a TV actor and is now the, the hero, if you will, in, in yeah. probably a, a history that's being written as we tape right now. Given those three examples, I'm pretty sure the verdict of history will be two for three. Exactly right. Exactly with the, right. With, one, with the one in the middle having a giant E next to it. Oi. 
Yeah, but it's the type of E. The problem is most E's you can hope to get out of the inning. Like if you can just get a double play ground ball, right? That's what right. we always say. Like don't compound the error. Just you have to mm -hmm. buckle down. Don't get angry. One of the pet peeves is when a pitcher gets angry that his fielders make errors, but they forget yeah. when the fielders make unbelievable plays to save them a run, right? Sure. So you really have to focus on it. But I'm afraid with the middle person, it's been very hard to overcome that error. I feel like there's been a bunch of unearned runs that have scored after which always bothered me because that's how you lose games yeah well we won't turn this into a political discussion no, i want to go because back you to know commissioner. what you know what happens that it isn't what we discuss here it's whatever portion of it someone wants to take out and feed into another narrative and beat us over the head with it i so, want to go back to, the, to you being commissioner bob i want yeah. you to tell me of the new rules because I think people have their view of where you stand on these things. And mm -hmm. I'd like you to tell me, are any of the, for, let's start with the easy one, pitch clock in Major League Baseball, pro or con? I think we need it, especially with no one on base. I still have questions about what happens with someone on base. You got a speedy runner at first. They proposed 14 seconds with nobody on base, 19 with someone on base. But what I want to know is, does the clock start as soon as the pitcher gets the ball back from the catcher, what if he throws over a couple times to keep the guy close? Now we're getting closer to 19 seconds. The runner knows he's got to deliver to the plate. He gets a gigantic jump. He waltzes into second base. So I'm not sure how that works with a man on base. But with nobody on base, I'm absolutely in favor of it. The runner on second base to start extra innings. Gimmicky. Don't like it. Thankfully, they've never used it in the postseason when the games matter most. A.J. Hinch had an interesting uh, suggestion. He just threw it out there. What if we played the 10th inning clean and the 11th inning, we put a guy on first and the 12th inning, we put a guy on second and the 13th inning, we put a guy on third. If it goes that far as so you have gradations of strategic uh, possibilities. But if you were running a team, my argument to you is that it is the biggest pain in the neck possible when games go 15 or 16 innings because yeah. I'm spending the time talking to my farm director, figuring out who we're going to call up. I'm getting the travel agent on the phone with the traveling secretary. The clubhouse guy has to make a new uniform. We have to send a guy out who we don't want to send out because we need to add add someone to the mm -hmm. roster because we have no arms. And all of it is because we're watching crappy baseball of hitters getting down on the knob and trying to hit home runs. Yeah, well, the game has changed to the point where the way pitching staffs are managed is entirely different, and it becomes a, a, much, a much more problematic situation if a game goes 17, 18 innings. On the other hand, some of those games become part of baseball lore, games that we still talk about years and years later. They're interesting by their very nature, and sometimes when uh, the battle of attrition gets to the 17th, 18th inning, and then you have to bring a position player into pitch or you, you have nobody on the bench. And so tomorrow night's pitcher, who's a halfway decent hitter, is brought in to lay down a bunt or to pinch hit. And sometimes wondrous things happen and become part of the, the conversation. I realize that the relatively few times that occurs isn't worth it in the mind of a modern baseball front office person when we're trying to figure out what the impact of that is on his pitching staff. We used to like to send the next day's starting pitcher home early the night before his start. So in theory, he could get rest, though many times they go out. But you just pretend that they're going home to rest. And we found that we got burned one too many times. 
And we had to stop doing that. But now with the new rule, you can send your starter ahead because you're, it's not going to go 18. So there's so many little things. I don't think that rule is going to go away uh-oh. anytime uh-oh. soon. Did you lose me? I, I, no, I got you. Um, okay. And I, I understand there's, there, there, are always, there are always reasons, and those reasons evolve over time. Um, it's like the universal DH. Uh, American League front offices and managers are concerned not so much with their pitchers being unable to hit, and they're at a competitive disadvantage since National League in an Italy game, since up until this year, National League pitchers did get a chance to bunt and to swing the bat, but they were very concerned about injuries with pitchers running the bases and whatnot. Um, And Universal DH appeals to the Players Association because, as you know, DHs tend to be higher salaried players, and that high tide helps to raise other boats. Uh, and it extends the careers of players who aren't so good defensively but are fan favorites and can still swing the bat. There's a lot of pluses to the DH, but lost, you know, as Joni Mitchell once sang, something's lost and something's gained and living every day. What's lost is, hey, it mattered that Adam Wainwright could hit, that Jacob deGrom could hit, that Zach Greinke and Madison Bumgarner could hit. It mattered. It was a small wrinkle in the game. It mattered if a guy could lay down a bunt. It was interesting if in a certain situation you use a pitcher as a pinch hitter or a pinch runner. And those little nuances are lost. Maybe there's a larger reason that supersedes it, but that's what's lost in the process. I like that you brought up on your show to Max Scherzer that he was 0 for 59 as though you were paying attention to that and wondering his reaction. Before we go, I could talk all, all day with you. I love this, and I know our, our listeners do too, but I want to talk about your show. Every uh-huh. Friday, it's called Back on the Record, and I want to go back to two episodes ago where we were on, and you, you were gracious enough to invite me to be on a panel with J.J. Reddick and Candice and, and Bomani, and I want to know, as a host of a show, that, that, that panel's gotten a lot of attention. And there was there was a exchange between me and Bomani. I had never met him before. It was not personal at all in my mind, but it was it was an important conversation. As the host of a show, when that's happening, I, what was going on in your mind? Well, I thought it was good television. I never liked to stage stuff. I'm not trying to put a carnival together. I'm not a heat over light guy. Uh, that's never been my approach. But that happened organically. You challenged what Bomani said. I didn't think it was disrespectful. I didn't think it was disrespectful of him to challenge what you said. That's what the conversation is. So a lot of it, knowing that it was reasonably open-ended, I just let you guys go. You may remember that I said before the segment began, I said to all four of you, don't, you don't have to wait for me to pose a question. You can respond to what the other person says, and it goes back and forth. So I'm listening to this and trying to sense when have we gone far enough and we should change the topic, but give everybody a chance Uh, to say their piece. And then also, I think that my role as the host is not just to ask questions. Sometimes it's to make points of my own. And so I did that, uh, as you may remember, within the 20 minutes or so that that we had this conversation. Did you have producers in your air during that segment? Were they in your ear talking to you? Only telling me how much time they thought we had left. Now, I know this too. Sometimes if we do it live or it has to be live to tape, I've got to be closer to time. But we taped that on Thursday and it aired on Friday. So I knew that if we went five or six minutes longer than we had planned, that we would just edit it down to make sure that the best stuff was preserved. And so you don't want to miss a possibility of a good topic being overlooked. So I just kept going. So they were in my ear saying five minutes. And I'm thinking, now nah, you're wrong. I'm going 10. More. And then 
two minutes. Now, now we're going to go seven more, you know. Well, I appreciate that you did this because I want to come back on your show and talk some baseball as we get more into the season because this season is proving to be is going to be very interesting. Bob, I'm very yeah. thankful for your time today. I really am. It's a, it's a fascinating season. It was ironic. I did bring you on with the idea that with the lockout having just ended, the season about to begin, that we talk about baseball. And it started off with Bomani having done a satirical piece about Coach K and J.J. Reddick there to defend Coach K. Then it spiraled into something else. And you were right there. You jumped right into it. And, and we didn't talk about baseball at all. Nope. But that didn't mean that you weren't able to hold up your end of the conversation. You certainly were. So uh, anyway, I apologize for taking up so much of your time um, and maybe not hitting as many topics as you wanted to. But always a pleasure. No, this was great, Bob, and I look forward to seeing you down the road. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, David. Nothing personal. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.